Welcome to the Kickstart Garage, where we want to inspire and educate the leaders of tomorrow. Join us as we learn from the best in the business. Welcome back to the Kickstart Garage. I'm your host, Sam John Byrne, and I'm accompanied by my co-host, Gavin Quigley. On today's show, we're joined by another member of the Magnate 100 community, Shane Fleming. Shane, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, uh, Sam Gavin, for having me on today. It's a pleasure, and thank you very much for inviting me on today. I suppose before we get into the more granular questions in relation to real estate, could you give us a bit of background about yourself and a bit of insight into Fleming Real Estate? Um, so a bit of background into myself. Um, I am a chartered uh, property surveyor, general practice. I have been working in real estate, mainly commercial real estate and a little bit of residential real estate for over 17 years. I have a degree in property economics and um, I've worked for companies like Tesco. I've worked for IBRC, which is the, the bank that emerged out of Anglo. And I worked for uh, JLL or Johns Lang, which were are one of the biggest real estate companies uh, in the world for a few years before setting out on my own about five years ago with Fleming Real Estate. And with Fleming Real Estate, I kind of cover all sorts of stuff from commercial advice to general strategy pieces to sales and acquisitions as well. And I suppose how I'm here today is probably more to do with kind of stuff that I've kind of put out on social media over the last year or so in terms of YouTube and maybe Instagram and connecting with the guys in Magnet as well. Um just because I don't think it's that there'd be a huge amount of real estate people on that group. And I think the reason I'm there or the reason I was invited is more to do with my uh, videos I've put out on YouTube and uh, how people have kind of connected with me over the last year uh, through, through that kind of media platform. Yeah, f fantastic intro there, Shane. We're going to get into all of this um, as we go through the podcast. Um, and I, I have to say, just from looking at your YouTube channel recently, this is the exact type of content that you know young Irish people are looking for. There's so many American people doing it, um, and because like kind of property investing is so big over there, it, it's really really refreshing to see Irish folks starting to, to bite the bullet and jump into that that content creation. Um, but just to go to continue with your background, Shane, I know you're a black rock man and you've obviously decided to go down the route of studying property economics. That was your degree of choice, like you mentioned. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those early days growing up and, and how you went about choosing that direction for yourself? Yeah, sure. Yeah. As you said, I'm I'm a Blackrock uh, boy. I went to Blackrock and Willow Park for a year or two as well. Um, I ended up boarding in Blackrock. Um and while I kind of struggled maybe my first year in boarding school, I really, really enjoyed my time at BlackRock and I've nothing but good things to say about it. But I wasn't the most academic person. I probably failed 90% of my exams going through the school. So, and I probably had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder in terms of authority and stuff like that. And I think perhaps from listening to some of your other podcasts, a lot of people who go into starting up their own businesses do have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder towards a somewhat authority and they want to get out on their own. But I, I was dyslexic. I struggled in school big time, uh, but I really kind of enjoyed uh, construction studies and woodwork uh, while I was in Blackrock. And lucky enough, uh, the school had a fantastic program there. And I did, I, I excelled at that. And I also kind of excelled at, at um, technical graphics uh, and art so I kind of had those subjects to kind of lean back on but even talking about 
technical graphics. I actually gave up technical graphics uh, about a year before leaving cert, even though it was probably going to be a really good mark for me. But I just got so sick of drawing the margins on the pages before you could actually do the work. And the teacher giving out to me, handing in um, homework, which didn't have the margins that you were meant to draw for technical graphics stuff. And I was like, I'll do that in the exam, but I don't feel I have to do it right now. It's not that big of a deal. And I got so frustrated with it. I ended up dropping, um, I dropped technical graphics in sixth year and I picked up economics. Um, a subject I didn't think that I'd actually enjoy that much, but I actually really, really uh, got it quite quickly. And I felt that I wanted to kind of do more in economics and obviously like the property side of stuff. Um, from BlackRock, if you were in BlackRock, the, the career advice was you go into you go into finance, uh, law, or you become a doctor. So they didn't have much kind of guidance for me in terms of getting into property, but I definitely knew it's what I wanted to do. I figured it out quite quickly. I figured it out quite quickly in terms of what points I'd need to get in terms of getting into property economics and DIT at the time. And I set my sights on it. And lucky enough, uh, I started to pass my exams when I put my head down on, on, and uh, my dyslexia didn't stand in my way. And I really enjoyed my time when I went to DIT after I left BlackRock. And I suppose one of the just talking about BlackRock, um, because it's something that kind of is on my mind way more than it ever has been. But BlackRock probably teaches one of the most important things it teaches is the value of your network and uh, kind of touch and base with your network all the time. And it's something that I kind of with that chip on my shoulder kind of dismissed it a lot uh, back while I was in BlackRock and when I left BlackRock and never really touched into that kind of network that's there. But in the last kind of few years, I was kind of said to myself, I really need to kind of get back involved with the network that's there because it's such a, a valuable tool and it's something all entrepreneurs really need to kind of get uh, used to is kind of getting uh, more involved with their network. Yeah, it's it actually funny enough you said that. I was only having a conversation with uh, one of my friends the last day um, just in terms of like education from college and like how much you can learn outside of it that's just as good as you learned in there. But most important thing is just the social aspect of it you know is to build build that uh connection of friends build that connection of um you know other people have skills that you're looking for too but um i kind of just want to move over here now to um talk a bit more strategically about fleming real estate so throughout your career you've had a lot of experience handling acquisitions disposals planning redevelopment and asset management i was wondering when did you feel confident enough to take the leap to go out and do this on your own and could you talk to us about the bridge between employed to self-employed and the early days of setting up Fleming real estate and what those were like I suppose um going out on my own was was always a goal from the minute I went to college uh, I always had it in my head that I wanted to go out on my own exactly what I wanted to do was a little bit up in the air but I knew that I wanted to work for a year or two, get a little bit of experience and go out on my own. And I, I think my career choice first off the bat, um, a lot of my colleagues uh, would have worked, would have gone and worked for a lot of the commercial uh, companies like CBRE and Savills. Um, I kind of pretty much said, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to get like kind of more hands-on experience. And I went and worked for Tesco because I knew I'd get really good hands-on experience in terms of actually what real life was about in terms of the property market from a development point of view from a planning point of view 
you get to see um, projects go from ground all the way to finish to asset managing them as well. So my goal was to go in there, uh, uh, spend maybe two, three years, learn everything I possibly could, get chartered and go out on my own. And at the time, I was probably thinking about going out more on my own from an investment and development point of view. And we're talking about kind of 2006, 2007, when I was kind of getting the confidence to go out on my own first off. And um, I decided uh, to seek some loan approvals. It was much easier back then. And I went to uh, go invest in a few properties. And I tried, I bid on a few investment properties, a few development projects as well. And luckily enough, at the time, I was outbid every single time. Uh, they just didn't meet my criteria in terms of where the bidding was going, because if I had landed one or two of those um, deals, they would have been back in 2007 at the height, and I would have been crushed completely going out on my own at that time. So decided not to. Um, I left Tesco for a while, kind of regathered myself eventually went back and worked for IBRC and learned a lot there. I learned what not to do, uh, realistically, what not to do. And in terms of setting out on my own, it was always a goal. So while I was working for Jones Lang, I was really just kind of trying to get the confidence back to go out on my own, as well as making sure the timing in regards to the market was correct. And uh, in terms of taking that risk. So it was more of a combination of feeling confident about going out on my own, as well as uh, feeling that I had the kind of resources to swallow a kind of a year or two without kind of um, not having a huge amount of income coming in. And when that when those two matched up, that's when I kind of decided I would go out on my own. And I've really enjoyed it. I, I wouldn't look back for one second. Yeah, I was just about to say, you've, you've come a long way. I mean, you've, you've got a very prestigious group of clients under the belt such as mcdonald's and circle k and whiplash beers and the first thing i'd like to understand is how do you attract a portfolio of clients like this and why did they avail of your services over competitors it's um i kind of nearly look at it as a double-edged sword a sword it is a blessing to get clients like that um and i got i got clients uh like McDonald's very early uh, after setting up Fleming Real Estate within the kind of first few months. Um, and it was, it really kind of made sure that I uh, could maintain Fleming Real Estate for the first year or two because uh, getting obviously big clients at that time was hard work. But I suppose how I, I attracted McDonald's was they were familiar with the work I've done in the past. They knew me from my past career and different organizations. They, I devised them in different organizations in the past as well. So when I went out on, on my own, they looked, uh, they asked me, they approached me and they said, would I be in a position to take on their portfolio in Ireland from um, a consulting uh, point of view on service charge and landlord and tenant uh, side advice from a leasing point of view? And I said, I would definitely be in a position to do it and I would have the capability of doing it as well. Um while, while it was a blessing, it was also a little bit of a curse because it was curse on probably two fronts. One, that you have, uh, you landed a major client and you get probably overconfident in your ability to attract other people. And I probably didn't work as hard as I really should have in the first year or two, trying to attract uh, more clients in. Um, 
and also you have a major client, you want to make sure that uh, you're looking after them uh, as much as you possibly can. Uh, but it, it was mainly through network and past experience. The same can be said with um, Circle K and same can be said for 90% of my clients. It's it's my advice and, and consultancy work that I've done in the past uh, or that they're familiar with. Um, sometimes in property, it's a small enough um network within commercial property so people might move from say from past past places from tesco to mcdonald's or mcdonald's circle k etc so that they know you're going from one place they'll bring their consultants with them to the next place as well so that kind of works in my favor having a kind of a strong network within the actual industry as well just a question popped into my head there actually um so when you attracted the likes of McDonald's, did you find any kind of benefit, like credibility through association with them for your business? Like, was there any positive impact when you took them on, say, in terms of attracting other clients just by being associated with them? Uh, there was, there, there probably was and there wasn't. There, there was in terms of, um, I did, I did attract one or two other um, reasonably decent sized landlords who saw that I was taking on that kind of work and said, if you're good enough to advise McDonald's on that side of uh, landlord and tenant advice, we're happy to take you on as well. Um, and that definitely did happen. I did pick up one or two clients that way, just on the basis that, um, on the basis of just purely picking up someone like McDonald's and Circle K, got a little bit of work out of Bank of Ireland because of it. And I got a little bit of work out of some other landlords, private landlords who have decent portfolios and shopping centers around the country as well. So it definitely helps. Um, but it, it did kind of leave me in a situation where particularly within the first year, there was a huge amount of kind of setup and, uh, and kind of making sure McDonald's were happy that I didn't have a huge amount of time to go out there and grow my business within the first year. Obviously, after year one and everything beds down and settles down with McDonald's, I had much more time to go focus on growing the business again. But it definitely, when I look back, I go, oh, well, I probably should have spent a little bit more time growing in year one as well. Yeah, I got you. Um, okay, I want to ask kind of a, a hypothetical question here. Let's assume you were away for a year and left someone else in charge of the business, but uh, they would send you, say, a, a weekly report, a monthly report, and yearly uh, on how the business is doing. What key metrics would you look to review, and why? It's a good question, and it's something I'm I'm struggling with massively at the moment. Uh, I really am struggling with it at the moment in terms of trying to define define that kind of w- what year metrics, and also if I stepped out of the business. Um, I kind of discovered kind of within kind of year three and four uh, that I'd created a decent turnover in terms of fees coming into the business. And I was getting to a point where I was like, well, the fees that are coming in are at a level that like, I'm not quite sure how I grow this any further based on my own time. And I needed to look at ways to leverage um, to leverage the business and leverage the brand. And I've been kind of looking at that for the last year or so, uh, maybe two years. And I'm only really kind of getting to a point now where I'm in a position to start doing that and start taking other people on. Um, And in terms of stepping out of the business, a huge amount of, I suppose, uh, my worth in terms of why clients pay me is based on my experience and my knowledge of uh, landlord and tenant uh, rent reviews, uh, different clauses that might pop up or different strategies and I can't 
at the moment find a good way to take myself out of that um because so much is based on my knowledge and experience within the market and knowing what loopholes or what strategies might work or even sometimes just knowing landlords and how a landlord might react to a certain uh, proposal or knowing a tenant and how a tenant might react to a certain proposal that can that can save months and months of negotiations or it can save a year in terms of a strategy piece if you know someone is going to either agree or or completely not agree to some terms that are within within a, a lease or a clause so taking myself out of it is a struggle it's something i need to do otherwise i'm going to be strapped to uh, fleming real estate for the rest of my life as an as an employee and not a not an entrepreneur uh, and i really need to focus on the entrepreneurial side of the brand and that's kind of where i'm pushing myself for the next year or two yeah it, it goes back to the the mystery of, of how to scale a business I know you've obviously you're quite successful because of your your expertise and little nuances that you'll know how to deal with. But of course, if it was if it was easy and if it was a simple solution to to scale and and really achieve like massive growth, everyone would be doing it. So that's the kind of beauty of, of being an entrepreneur facing that that specific challenge. I suppose just just on on challenges, it seems now we're in July twenty twenty one. Um, if anyone's listened to this, you know, while into the future, vaccines have started kind of rolling out or expediting in Ireland. Industries, I suppose, are getting back on their feet. We're through the worst of the pandemic. What I want to know, Shane, is how badly your business was affected over the last, you know, 18 months or so. And whether or not you made any like specific, like strategic changes, pivots, measures you took to kind of stay afloat, keep things gone during that, that chaotic period uh during that uh period i suppose um i i probably might have been like a kind of a month or two be, uh thinking about it before probably most other people in ireland were um my wife uh her family is from new york hence why i'm over here at the moment but um her family was due to come over, but her mum was sick at the time and she wasn't able to travel. And we were kind of thinking that, uh, or I was thinking that uh, with everything going on kind of in, in January and February, I was a bit worried about her uh, father uh, traveling to Ireland at the time, just in case something happened. And I was also quite worried about my wife in terms of her not being able to travel back to America. So I actually kind of put my foot down and said to her, her family to not travel over in March. They were due to travel over, I think, on the day. 12th of March I told them to cancel that and I actually told uh, my wife to rather than them coming over here she needed to fly over to America to make sure she could see her mum and I suppose because I was in the mindset of that and thinking about that I was also kind of thinking where what's going to happen to Fleming real estate probably well before other people were thinking about it um and I ended up in a position where I had a handful of sales, which I was trying to push through before uh, stuff actually really hit the water in terms of lockdown and all that. And one or two got got over the line quickly, but I was left with a few uh, sales that were struggling to get uh, closed. And then when lockdown happened, everyone got nervous. No one wanted to complete anything. A lot of work stalled for months. And I suppose one of the difficulties with running kind of a real estate business when a lot of your fees are based on sales or acquisitions generally the way that contract is set up is you only get paid uh, when the deal is finished so 
if someone backs out of a deal after six or seven months, you could be in a position where you're you're not getting anything out of that deal. And same with a sale. Um, so the first few months were definitely a struggle. Um, lost a handful of sales. Luckily enough, all of those sales that we had lost uh, all came back and we originally, with the original uh, purchasers, and we closed all of them off. But it took months. It took some of them nine months to get over the line, which is a long time in terms of waiting for a fee. I was lucky enough, though, with my consultancy work, um, I had a number of rent reviews that are ongoing, and they kept kind of rolling. Um, and the fees for them kept coming in every kind of few week or every few months. So the fact that I had those consultancy work uh, with some service charge consultancy and some rent reviews, which not a lot of kind of smaller agencies might have uh, if they're just kind of focusing on sales or lettings. At least I had that consultancy work coming in, which kind of pretty much saved me um, and had a re- okay year. Um, but th- those fees saved me. But those consultancy uh, fees that came in during kind of 2020, probably a lot of the work that had actually happened with that, with that ha- happened in 2019 nearly um just because sometimes they take so long to actually get processed and paid but luckily enough i was in a position that the consultancy fees kind of kept us kept us going yeah i suppose it kind of it was just a, a matter of diversification early on making sure you had different income streams it's the old old saying in in investing that you know diversification is so important but just to to kind of move forward we're obviously in in a much brighter period now you've been going with Fleming real estate for over five years I believe now that you can kind of see light at the end of the tunnel that kind of thing the future looks pretty bright I want to know what um like your your main plans are for like let's say the rest of this decade um like do you have anything particular that you're looking to achieve metric wise or how do you foresee the next kind of you know the, the rest of this decade panning out from a property point of view or just from Fleming real estate point of view well, like, we'll we'll get into the kind of outlook on the industry after this but i just mean for Fleming real estate is there any milestone that you're looking to take off in terms of like client numbers or revenue or anything like that without going into too much detail of course yeah like um I like in my first kind of five years, I've pretty much um I was pretty much starting at a low enough base, but I was pretty much able to double my revenue every single year um for the first five years. Last year or whatever this year, whatever way you're gonna run the, the, the accounts this year, but probably roughly maintaining and I think that's what I set out to do in terms of uh when everything went to lockdown and uh, was to maintain and so far so good have roughly maintained there probably hasn't been much growth but roughly there or thereabouts ideally I kind of felt that I was at a level where I can't get double figure growth again until I start taking more people on because it's just from a time point of view and a consultancy point of view and everything it just wouldn't have it wouldn't have made sense for me to continue to try grow the business that way uh, so milestone took the first employee on last uh, or last year, um, kind of part time. But as, as things grow, uh, her, her her involvement in the business is growing and giving her more and more responsibility. So, ideally, I'd want to continue grow from an employee number, not not massively, but because I want to still keep um, uh, the service very high end and make sure that clients. Um, 
I don't, I don't particularly feel like I need to go after a huge amount of clients. It's more about kind of the quality uh, of the client uh, rather than volume. Um, and I think that's where I want to grow. In terms of Fleming Real Estate over the next 10 years, it's really trying to work m- myself out of the business a little bit and just let myself manage the business uh, from an overall business point of view and not be directly dealing with clients uh, on, a, on a daily basis, but more dealing with clients on a strategic basis and having uh, maybe 10 to 15, maybe 20 clients or t- 20 employees over the next kind of 10 years. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of touched on it. And like, would that be your biggest challenge at the moment? Like, you know, you've obviously got this big picture. It's the perspective that you're focusing on. Is it hard to not get like bogged down in the everyday details of, of dealing with individual clients that only you can kind of get back to? Or is it kind of like a, a work in progress at the moment? Would that be your biggest challenge, would you say? Or Yeah, it would It would definitely be my biggest challenge. And I think um, it's, it's something I've known has been my biggest challenge. And I've looked for different models. I've looked to the US. I've looked for different models, how I could step out of it. Like, And I suppose a lot of the models in the US and elsewhere are very much driven on a on a, a sales model, i.e. You're, you can bring in as many agents as you need to and manage the agents on the basis that they're selling X amount of properties or units per month or per year, where from my point of view, half of my business is on the consultancy side. I, I can't like, I can't farm out that work as easy as you could farm out a sales or a letting. Um, so while I think the growth is going to come from the sales and letting, I still want to make sure that the people I surround myself uh, within Fleming real estate kind of buy into that. And ideally, um, I want to bring in people who want to kind of be entrepreneurs themselves um, and help them either maintain uh, involvement in Fleming real estate, uh, but be their own, uh, be their own boss within Fleming real estate or stay a few years, get trained up. I'll help them and perhaps go out on their own. And they're the kind of staff I'd want to attract. Obviously, We'll need one or two admin staff and kind of do have have that kind of service there. But the st- the staff I want to attract are kind of entrepreneurial spirits as well that may want to kind of train for two or three years and uh, run their own business a little bit as well and and have more control over their their own destiny. Yeah, it's important to have employees that have the reflections of your own values. Um, I kind of just want to talk a bit more. Uh, regarding residential and commercial investing because i know there's some listeners that like the nuance of that um topic um so just to start the way i look at property valuation is the same way as i look at buying a business the value of a business is determined by what it could produce in terms of cash between now and judgment day discounted at an appropriate discount rate then i ask um when will i get this cash and how sure am i and i kind of look at property the same way so for those listening, that would be an absolute way of determining a value, but you can also use relative valuation, um, for instance, in properties by looking what other properties sold for. Um, with that said, I was wondering if you could talk to us about how you approach determining the value of a property, both from a residential and commercial perspective, and what you believe are the critical factors to consider that would alter that valuation drastically. Um, I suppose... Residential values will start with that because it's <clears throat> a lot a lot easier. Um, generally speaking, from a residential point of view, the norm within the market is on a comparison basis. Um, 
where you would look at what similar sales have happened within the area um, with similar size properties and base your value on that. You can amend it a little bit from a square footage point of view, car parking, uh, fit out, all that kind of stuff. But generally that is the basis for um, most residential valuations. You can get into a little bit of investment analysis um, if the market is very slow, I suppose back in like 2000 and kind of maybe nine, 10, 11, uh, some people may have kind of applied uh, an investment model to some residential properties on the basis that there was very little sales actually happening and to, to, to determine the value, they may have applied a, a more an investment approach. But generally speaking, when a market is active within the residential side, values are based on um, comparisons. Commercial is a hell of a lot different. Uh, commercial will actually, some people in terms of the way you'd value a business, uh, the way I would apply that to uh, an asset or a property asset would be on the basis of a discounted cash flow. Um, and you'd, you'd put in the, the rents that you may achieve over a number of years, how much you're going to uh, get for the property, how much you're going to pay for the property right now, and how much you'll be able to sell the property for in a number of years, discounted at an appropriate rate or yield. So that's pretty much the same way as you'd value a business. Uh, the difference is, I suppose, with a property, you have a fixed asset that you'll hopefully be able to sell in a number of years with a company. Your company performance may differ depending on, on the leadership within that company. Um, but how, how commercial valuations can differ they can differ so much between building to building like just simple example you could have two blocks uh, two office blocks side by side um reasonably new construction uh one could be valued at 50 million and one could be valued at 100 million and the only difference may be the lease uh the leases that are in one building versus the other building because the lease that's in place and the covenants and the clauses within a lease uh, can determine can have a huge impact in determining the value of commercial property and if you don't know how to read a lease if you don't know how to read rent review clauses or um, yield up clauses in terms of repairs and renewals or even know who the tenant is i.e you may have um I'll, I'll use them as an example but it wouldn't be a good example but you may have mcdonald's operating within a building and you might go oh well mcdonald's are the tenant well actually speaking the tenant isn't the tenant could be some subset of a company that has no assets or no liabilities and therefore you're uh well well while um mcdonald's might be trading there that's not the lease that is actually in place so it's important to understand who actually is the covenant on the lease and actually what the terms are because they can have a huge impact on value so let's talk about um, uh, valuations in the property market at the moment. I mean, they're at all-time highs, um, given the low interest rate environment, uh, supply constraints, and the multitude of variables that are kind of playing off each other at the moment. Um, so it, it may, like, getting a property under the belt may be out of reach uh, for people with limited capital to invest, um, whether that be rental property or residential but uh, an alternative consideration that I'd favor would be investing in REITs. For one, you don't have to worry about managing the property or anything, and any profits by REITs are mostly paid out to investors because of legislation. 
Um, what are your thoughts on investing in REITs and what would you consider before investing in them? Um, just back to your very first point, like in terms of people not having the ability to invest in properties because of limited cash flow. Like I would say like the first thing, if someone did want to kind of really get involved in property, um, perhaps the way to do it is to kind of like if two or three people who are really good friends can invest in one property and, and start that way might be one way of doing it. But um, obviously you need to trust who you're going into uh, to be a landlord with. In terms of REITs, um, obviously there's not many REITs in Ireland. It's a new enough concept in terms of an Irish point of view, uh, in terms of investing uh, within REITs within the stock exchange. We lost one of our very first REITs in terms of green REIT. Uh, it was lost in Ireland because the value that was placed on it within the stock market was actually probably like 10% or 13% lower than what the actual assets were within the company. Uh, so the decision was made that actually the, the value on the stock exchange was lower than the asset value. So they decided to shut it up and sell it on as just one one, one lump uh, to one investor. Uh, but there is two or three REITs still left in Ireland. Um, in terms of investing in them and what to look out for, like if you go onto any REITs webpage, they give you a huge amount of information from an investor point of view in terms of what their dividends are likely going to be, uh, what they're planning to invest in, what they've actually invested in, what their rent collection is in terms of any avoids or any um, arrears that they might have. So there's a huge amount of information you can get on a REIT before you invest in it. Um, the one thing I would say that if you're looking at a REIT, uh, there's the iRes REIT, which is pretty much 90% or 99% uh, residential. So your exposure to the market will be in the residential uh, rental market. But then you have Ibernian REIT, which has maybe 10% residential and the rest of it is um, mainly offices. Uh, so your exposure is going to be mainly on the office market. So if you're buying into that, you're kind of assuming that the office market will continue to perform over the next few years. Um, but there are a few other uh, investment vehicles out there or UK REITs and so on that may be uh, devalued massively over the last uh, number of months, particularly with uh, COVID because they were very heavily bought into uh, shopping centers and um, retail schemes. So they're, they've devalued a huge amount over the last kind of um, 18 months. So you kind of have to know what is hell within the REIT before you invest in it. Um, the main difference between investing in REITs versus actually investing in property is your ability to leverage. So in terms of leveraging in Ireland, generally speaking, you can leverage up to about 70% of the value. So as the capital grows and you're paying down your uh, loan, you are gaining all the time. However, if you're buying a REIT, it's just the same as buying shares. You're not, you don't have a position to be able to leverage your position within a REIT. Very good. I'm definitely going to clip a, a segment for that for the promotion afterwards because it's some some fairly deep insight that I didn't even think of. And I've got the Giro account. I've invested. I definitely invest in that Hibernian REIT. I didn't even think of what was in it. I had a quick look at the website and I thought, yeah, grand, just so I had it on my portfolio. But just shows that the more you know, the better. And I didn't even think about, about the UK as well. I want to just look at like from a, a residential lens, I suppose, let's say another kind of hypothetical question, but let's say we're in a perfect world where a 25 year old from Dublin, like myself can, you know, actually think about buying a property 
like banks are lending, prices aren't too high. What are some of the main factors or, you know, things people forget or neglect when looking to purchase a, a property in Ireland? Uh, what do they forget or neglect? Um, I think uh, some people get too honed in on the actual location or the street sometimes. Um particularly nowadays i think like there's a lot of people i just use like say portobello or ranala for an example and people like in that kind of age category in their young 20s early 30s that are like fixated on buying there but if they were to go 500 meters in down the canal a little bit further they might actually get a, a slightly not nicer house and have more money to fix it up um but it's sometimes they can get a little bit fixated on location uh, where 500 meters down the road is not a huge amount of a difference realistically. But um, what I, what I would kind of suggest is what, because I've seen it happen quite a lot, particularly in Ireland and perhaps it happens all over the world is a lack of vision, uh, a lack of vision of what you can do with the property. Um, I have seen, I'll give you two examples. I'll give you one example, but I've seen uh, a property, an apartment uh, sell in uh, Monkstown, or not Monkstown, Milltown, uh, for about 425000 And it was a 30-year-old apartment, but it had a brand new kitchen and it had a brand new bathroom. And it was painted, given a lick of paint. Probably someone spent about maybe 20000 on the apartment before they brought it to the market. Two apartments down, same complex. It, the apartment hadn't been touched for the guts since it was probably constructed so the all an old bathroom 30 30 year old bathroom 30 year old kitchen and hadn't been painted in a few years sat on the market at 310 uh, the apartment that actually sold for three or for 425 um had about 70 people in at a, an open viewing and it flew off the market or flew off the market within kind of two or three days and bidding was pretty high on it but there was about 75 people within that in that open view. And I, I don't think any of them went in next door and saw the apartment that was for sale for 310. Because any of them that did go in, walked straight in and walked straight out. All it needed was about 25 grand to bring it up to the same level. And a huge amount of people uh, lacked the vision um, or lacked the will to be able to go do that. And I think... Uh, people like me take those advantages. I take advantage of those and give them to clients when I see them. Um, but I think a lot of people in Ireland miss that. And if you if you are a person who misses or doesn't have that vision, bring a designer or bring an architect with you to some of these places and you will pick up better deals. It's incredible how much you can, I suppose, as a property investor, add to the value by just throwing a few quid into maybe like a new kitchen, a few licks of paint, that kind of thing. The discrepancy in prices is, is insane. And it just shows like the amount of weight people will put into their first impression of a place and in the interior. Um, a, a lot of folks out there, you know, they're, they do try to time the market and they say that, you know, there's generally like a boom and bust cycle to real estate as there is in the stock market, even though obviously one is a lot more liquid than the other. To look at things through that investing lens, do you think like market timing is a good strategy or do you think real estate investing should just literally be approached on a, on a deal by deal basis? Um, I think it's a bit of both. I would have said like, um, like a few years ago, I would have said like, yeah, 
there's geniuses out there that somehow are able to time the market. Um, and there, there obviously was particularly back in the last kind of crash, there was, there was as many people that got out of the market than, than bought in, uh, as long as they didn't kind of leverage up on kind of properties that they already had. But a lot of people sold out at the height. Uh, a lot of people saw that it was, it was, uh, property was at the height and they sold out. Um, but I, in terms of timing and in terms of deal to deal, uh, I think it, it's based what I've seen or when I go back and look at some of these people who have timed the market really well, perhaps back in 07 and again when they bought back in in kind of 2013 um, and kind of what I've kind of learned from kind of people who have seen do that. Um, it's not that they're actually quite timing the market. They, it looks like they're timing the market really, really well. But what they do is they have a, a set criteria. And they know when they when certain deals will make sense when it hits a certain yield or when it hits a certain kind of margin. They'll have criteria set up and analyzing lots of deals uh, before they buy. Once it kind of hits that criteria, they're ready to buy. And it looks then it looks like they've timed the market really really well a few years later. But it was their deal. It was that individual deal. Getting back to the point of is it an individual deal point of view, but. It was the individual deal that made sense. It may not have been particularly the market, but they're, everything aligned up in terms of their criteria from a price point of view, from a yield point of view, uh, and it looked like they timed the market really well, but it was just their criteria matched. And again, when they sold, it was like yields were at an all-time high, and uh, it, was, it was their time to get out of the market based on their criteria. Um, so I think it's, it's important people look like geniuses that they're timing the market but realistically what they're doing is they have a set criteria and they stick to that criteria and therefore it's a deal by deal basis in a lot of cases um i just want to talk about uh the property landscape at the moment because i know you've done a couple of videos on it. i know there was one with regards to david mcwilliams and uh, the cuckoo fund so as of the time we're recording this podcast i mean the property scene in ireland especially for first-time buyers is it's just red hot and not in a good way it's near impossible to afford a decent home let alone an investment property um obviously there's creative ways you can go about it but um for people that just kind of go the traditional route of getting the uh the loan and getting the property um it just seems out of reach and the, th the thing is everyone's got their take on it and what i see is a lot of you know well put together arguments with logical solutions but each argument is treated as the ultimate cause and effect as to why we're here and the, the solutions are proposed that they that's just like they would fix everything. Um, but when you look at the macro of issues, you'd understand there are multiple variables playing off each other um, here and no one solution would be the be all and end all. With that said, I was wondering, what's your take on the current property environment in Ireland at the moment, um, both from a buyer and investor's perspective? Um, I suppose like going back to kind of some of your points in terms of the solution side of stuff, like, um, and everyone kind of coming up with different solutions and like when you when you boil them down they're not all going to be as equal to each other but like fundamentally i think it, it's a lot it's a slightly longer term um solution that's it's going to take time to solve the housing crisis it's not going to be fixed within a year or two um and i think it comes down to planning and it comes down to allowing building to actually happen and i think if we stopped kind of uh, objecting to every planning uh, development that went in, allowed houses to be built, uh, things would improve dramatically. Like I think a simple example from a planning point of view was 
a few years ago, um, we had a shortage of student accommodation uh, within Dublin and some of the major cities. Uh, the council redesigned uh, what student living could be like uh, from a commercial point of view, and people rushed in and built a huge amount of student accommodation. Uh, people also, it still makes sense for people to build hotels. Uh, it's still affordable uh, from an investment point of view because the building regs and the planning uh, around it still make financial sense for a lot of people to go ahead and build them. The problem is at the moment, the planning uh, requirements around building apartments and particularly from a funding point of view, just don't make any sense. Um, and from an apartment point of view, Ireland and Dublin is like 30% larger uh, apartments uh, compared to the EU average. We are also, we apartments require kind of dual aspects. That all leads into an inability to actually build. So if the planning system and the design standards were changed, you'd see a rapid growth in terms of development actually taking place and the market would resolve itself because the market would know there's demand at certain prices and the market would uh, build out quite quickly um, as it has done in the past with hotels and has done in the past with student accommodation uh, the ability to build is there and uh, it just seems to be the stumbling block for me is on the the residential or on the design side for and planning side for residential apartments um, I don't see that changing. I don't see that there's a political will to change it from any any um, party. So I think the problem is going to be compounded even further, uh, particularly within Dublin. Uh, from a commercial point of view, um, I, I see the commercial market probably being reasonably strong within the city centre. Uh, there's a huge amount, as, we, as you talked about earlier on, there is a huge amount of capital out there. And while there may not be a huge amount of capital out there for individuals to buy their, their own home, there's a huge amount of capital out there for funds at low interest rates. And if they're borrowing at 1% uh, and they're able to buy a, a prime office building at 4 or 5% uh, return, uh, there's funds all around the world that will snap that up. Um, so from a, an office and commercial point of view, I'd imagine things will still to be built and still be sold quite quickly. The issue will be, will tenants take them up? I presume they will. I, I'm I'm back here in New York and I, I can see the city is filling up quite quickly and a number of companies are forcing people to go back to uh, the office and I, I'm imagining the same will happen in Dublin as well. Yeah, just on that, I had my first day back in an office today since March 2020. I think it's slowly moving to that hybrid model. Um. Phenomenal insights there, Shane. For those of you who are fascinated by this conversation, definitely go and check Shane out on YouTube. Uh, I'll let you plug it in a second, Shane, and we'll, we'll leave links below. Um, but it is really, really cool to get your take on it. And, you know, we have a couple more questions for you. A while back, I became obsessed with the idea of becoming like a rental property investor. And I'd speak fairly openly with people about it, just trying to learn more, get people's opinions within the industry and things. And you know, now with COVID, et cetera, there's a lot of anger among young Irish folk, obviously looking to purchase, get away from paying extortionate rents, at least mainly in Dublin, you know. And that anger, it generally gets aimed at both the Irish government, of course, uh, as usual, but also landlords, you know, like landlords are so hated in Dublin. It's insane. My, it's kind of like it scared me off the idea of ever, you know, purchasing to rent in Dublin. 
and it's it's kind of pushed me more towards the idea of REITs. I'm wondering, Shane, like if you come across this narrative, do you think landlords get a, a bad reputation? Um, I suppose probably landlords have always had a little bit of a bad reputation, uh, always um, from different sectors, like from the commercial point of view. You'd always have landlords pushing up rent reviews and stuff like that, and so you'd have to deal with that from years and years ago. Um, I put actually interesting enough. I put out a poll. I saw a comment on something, and I just took a screenshot of it and I put up a poll on Instagram, going, "Are landlords now hated or despised um, within Dublin, or is it now not favourable to be become a landlord in Ireland anymore?" And ninety percent of people, I don't know, maybe about two, three hundred people answered that poll, and about ninety percent of people came back and said yes landlords are are despised um at this point and it's no longer seem to be uh desirable to be a landlord at the moment um i i'd have a lot of concerns about that like my in my my mind's like it is it is a way to create wealth uh it's a way to create it's not a, it's not an easy way to create wealth and it's not a short term to create wealth but from a long term point of view going into your retirement having a few investment properties is is definitely a way to go to secure a decent pension uh, into your retirement and and uh, support your family into the into the future um, i'll give you a few examples i won't mention names but people will cop on who i'm talking about pretty quickly but like uh, i remember one time uh, in ranla coffee a coffee uh, coffee shop there in ranla put up a tweet giving out about their landlord uh, removing a storage unit from them um, and everyone jumped on Twitter and gave the landlord a huge amount of abuse. People found out who the landlord was, uh, gave the landlord, uh, the company, the directors, an awful amount of abuse. But what people don't realize was that this coffee shop was using a storage unit that they didn't have rights to uh, for nearly four, nearly going on five years. And once you get into kind of using something for five years, you get into a kind of a landlord and tenant kind of rights to a lease and renewing a lease and you can hold on to it for 20 years and it can go to court and all that kind of stuff. So the landlord was coming up to five this five-year anniversary of where this coffee shop had been using this storage unit without permission and basically said, well, if you don't, and, and trending them legally for nearly five years to stop using it. And basically, went, right, fine, we're knocking it down and we're, we're removing your stuff out of it. But the landlord had no choice there. They had to do that. They had to protect their overall property investment. Otherwise, they'd be negligent in terms of managing their property. And I felt that was very harsh that like hundreds and thousands of people got on Twitter and abused the two individual directors uh, within that company. I seen it happen with a, a pub, a, a really nice pub that I used to go to all the time. Uh, very close to Portobello uh, that had to relocate uh, a few, um, about two years ago at this stage, or maybe a year and a half ago. Um, but it was on in a development site. They got a sweetheart deal to move in for a year or two. And if the recession didn't happen in 2006, they probably would have survived maybe two years there. The fact that the recession happened, they survived nearly 10 years there. And then they complained that they're being kicked out. They were lucky to be there 10 years uh, and they would only be there 10 years uh, they were probably only going to be there for two years uh, because the site was a development site and always was a development site and i think they went on to twitter they went on to instagram and like there was protests there was actually a protest on the doll against the landlord like I, it's just ridiculous what 
people think that like uh, or how they use social media against landlords and forget that landlords are running a business as well it's their business that they have to protect yeah i think when it comes to social media there's a lot of people who uh, they get very emotional and they fail to like critically analyze a situation but you can never underestimate the power of a lot of stupid people like uh, not to call everyone stupid on twitter but like they do have power and they can go and protest and, and make a really big nuisance of themselves. Um, so I'll, I'll just say that, like, and obviously, you know, everyone knows landlords. Most of them are probably nice people. So it's a shame that there's such a big stigma around them these days. Uh, one final question for you. Um, it's a, just a kind of a simple question for you, Shane. I think a, a lot of people, a lot of young people in Dublin, they're angry and they're scared and they're confused at the moment. Uh, just just the current situation, you know, they're torn between emigrating because that seems to be the only real option or simply moving to the commuter belt. A lot of people are working remotely at the moment and at least they're going to be within driving distance of the, the city centre. Um, and they're just looking for a, a somewhat affordable place to live. Are there any forecasts, you know, nuggets of optimism or, or even just any small piece of advice that you could offer to the Dublin population who are currently tearing their hair not knowing what to do well i suppose the current situation is quite hard for anyone looking for a house um it's hard for anyone thinking about selling their house as well because they're not quite sure if they sell it now will they be able to find something to move into um so it's it's hard on both fronts um what i would say is kind of i look at kind of other markets that are maybe a little bit ahead of us from kind of the global lockdown kind of scenario and the, the peaks and troughs in terms of kind of demand. Um, I can see now from looking at some kind of US cities that like the US have been open pretty much uh, fully for the last few months. Um, so markets are beginning to kind of level out. And from looking at kind of some of the reports and talking to some people here, it looks like that huge frenzy of buyers and crazy bids are actually drying up uh maybe not that there's there's still a demand there but just people are like okay well that was a crazy few months we need to kind of like take a check and like not be doing these crazy bids or accepting these crazy demands that um vendors might have uh, in terms of uh, asking with like certain closing dates or asking for people to sign without um doing surveys and all that kind of stuff so or even seeing the property which ha kind of happened uh with lockdown a few months ago um but I, I i suppose from a bit of hope i think that the market will hopefully settle down and things will become normal and rather than multiple bidders bidding up uh, properties you might only have one or two uh, people bidding up properties and things will, will get a bit um calmer um uh, that's my hope um in terms of the supply side it's going to be a good few years till um realistically uh new housing is is brought onto the market but if a lot of people emigrate and a lot of people leave then obviously there's going to be less people looking to buy um and less people looking to rent so uh, it would be a shame like I, i'm saying that now i'm in ireland but i, I or sorry i'm in america and i'm saying it'd be shame for people to to emigrate like i i only came over here for family reasons but now that i'm here i'm like should I look for opportunities while I'm here? Um, but myself and my wife have got a house that we want to renovate in Dublin, in, in Portobello, and we, we want to do that. We want to go back and do that at some stage. Um, but, 
yeah, if you're if you're looking right now, it is hard. I've I've a number of clients looking at this at this time as well. And lucky enough, we had we were able to find some uh, properties for some clients over the last few months. Um, but it's definitely hard out there. Um, and I think from an immigration point of view, I was thinking about it myself uh, while I'm here and while I'm learning from different markets and different kind of um industries over here. I was kind of th- looking at some of the tweets that are coming out of politicians with the current lo- local election Dublin South Bay. I really think it should be a requirement for anyone who's running for election or in government positions that they should spend six months or a year in other countries to get to know what um, other cultures are like so they can bring back some of the positive things within other countries to Ireland rather than Ireland being kind of so backward from a politic or political point of view that Maybe they should bring back some new ideas if they were all told before you run for election, you have to spend a year or six months somewhere else. But that's just how I'm seeing things differently over the last few months. But I'm sorry to say I don't have a huge amount of hope for supply in the next kind of year anyway. Hopefully after that, it will it will level out though. Yeah, I suppose we can only be patient. Um, That's it, but... Uh... Uh, that's fantastic, Shane. Um, I I think we'll leave it there for today. It was been ap- just sorry. Just 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 before kind of like uh just before I let you go, guys. Um, I kind of was thinking about it because because it's kind of a kickstart. Like you're you're kind of aimed at entrepreneurs and kind of all that kind of stuff. I know some people listening might be uh just looking or from an investment point of view, property investment point of view. But from a business point of view, um, just kind of want to share that like. Where I see a lot of businesses um, kind of mess up sometimes is while they might get great legal advice uh, when they're entering into contracts or entering into leases, sometimes those legal that legal advice doesn't kind of uh, take into account the day-to-day side of stuff, uh, how a business might operate or how a new company might operate. And I think it's important to get property advice from an expert uh, who deals with leases because I've seen people's businesses destroyed by uh, I've seen businesses destroyed by rent reviews happening five years down the line where uh, the rents have just been so much that the business can't survive. I've seen businesses when they're leaving their premises, if they want to leave too soon, getting absolutely murdered in terms of how much they have to hand over to the landlord, pretty much ruining their business. I've one example of a, of a really a multinational company moving into a a huge building and taking a lease in the building but not paying attention to uh, the car park opening hours and the car park opening hours were from eight to eight Uh, however them being a multinational they had uh, staff in there up until like 10 11 or whatever and effectively it meant that they had to go down and get their staff to get their cars out of the car park at eight o'clock and move them up uh, to the street and pay for street car parking in the evening times. So they were just little things within leases that absolutely destroy how a business can operate. And I think from from kind of the startup side of things, uh, I think people should get proper advice when signing leases, uh, not just from a legal point of view, but also from an operational and how that might affect your business kind of five years, 10 years or 20 years down the line. It's so important. Yeah, I know one of our old guests, uh, Sean Bryan, he's Fender Cutting, so he mentioned that as one being one of the biggest problems he faced when starting off as well. So that's good advice that you shared there. But um, before we let you go, can you let the audience know where they can go to find out more about you? Um, I suppose the easiest way to kind of reach out to me uh, is on Instagram. It's Fleming Real Estate. Um, 
and also on YouTube, if you want to watch some of the videos, it's uh, Fleming Real Estate Property Agents on YouTube. Uh, but generally speaking, Instagram uh, is the easiest way to get a hold of me um, through DMs and stuff like that. Good stuff. Thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Kickstart Garage. This show is for entertainment purposes only. This show is for entertainment purposes only. No one on the show has provided investment advice. The information provided by the Kickstart Garage podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The opinions and views expressed on the Kickstart Garage podcast or those of the participants do not reflect those of the host or sponsors. The Kickstart Garage, its producers, sponsors, hosts and guests shall not be liable for losses resulting from the investment decisions based upon the opinions and viewpoints presented on the Kickstart Garage.